0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 458 of Concerted Criticism. I'm your host, Keezy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, a man who is supposedly getting internet soon so that we can see his face, Mason Clark. Hey, that's me. I'm trying stuff. And speaking of trying stuff, a man who uh, is not wearing a hoodie or a beanie today, Abe Stein. It's hot, man. It's hot.
1: Where do you live? It can't be that hot. I live in Maryland. It's just a hot... That sounds, sounds hot. like it's it actually, not
0: hot. That actually it, it specifically was sounds like it's hot it's in that. my
1: room. Uh, I want to be cold. Today Today was a day where I felt hot internally all day. I would like to feel cold. I wore a hoodie today,
2: even though it was warm, because I like hoodies. It's cool to be cold.
1: I keep I'm my having, having a job five. where you can wear a hoodie, Mason. I wore a tie all day. I, I outside, actually. Uh,
0: <laughs> I don't have a job, so... Uh, I was in a tank top all day until this podcast. And I will say this. Uh, my friends often come over to my house and literally say the words, you live in a refrigerator. Um, the hottest I will put my AC to is 71. Like, that's the wish it, the literal hottest. I wish Based. I was in a refrigerator right now. I I just... I. It's so easy. This is just a hot take. I don't know if it's a hot take. It might be a cold take. Uh, but like, it's so easy to put clothes or a blanket on. It is so hard mm-hmm. to shed enough things to be cold enough to be where you want to be. Live your life. Pay the bill for the cool air. Or like, get a fan. Like, I just, there's no, there's no reason to live in a hot place. So. Anyway. Speaking of hot things. Let's talk about always improvements to the point of the show. We're always trying to be getting better each and every week. And Abe, you're first this week. What have you been trying to do to improve at magic or life in general? What's going on, man? Uh
1: yeah. So this week I uh, I put the Ducky down, or in this case the otter down, uh, for my my RSQs. And I was like, I as much as I was having fun playing and I was actually learning a lot about what, where the format's at um in terms of Pioneer. I was like, all right, I need to actually start making sure I understand the positioning of the two fallback decks I'm looking at, which is Rakdos and Monogreen. Picked Mono Monogreen, and uh, that deck's very good. I, uh, I actually had a really good time, like, learning a lot of the stuff that had changed. There's a lot of... Um, like, I hadn't really played the deck since they had removed the black sources from the deck, so, like, Cauldron kill people when you needed to. Um, when you, like, I guess, can't stone brain people. Um... Their fun fact like kill with
0: can i can i sorry not trying to interrupt but like the introduction of uh silex the new silex makes it so you never have to stonebury people if the, you want to demonstrate a different loop
1: or if yeah that's infinite... what i to say: is that the I, remembering how to explain to someone <laughs> that you can like like how that loop works and how like you can deal even though we're like gaining infinite life and i'm making infinite mana i can deal infinite damage bigger than the infinite life you gained things like that um just really becoming familiar with those again, the combo lines. And also, um, you know, just putting in the time with those decks was really helpful. And I did want to winning an RCQ on, on Saturday for those of you who follow me on Twitter, get to see my beautiful smiling face, holding my invite letter to, uh, to Dallas. And I think green's probably my front runner for, uh, for, or maybe to Atlanta, but green's probably my front runner for Dallas, just because I think it's like in a really, really good spot right now. Um, and, and, I'm really happy that I put in the time I did because I was able to, you know, like I, I worked with Mason's list that he won with last week and um, was like, yeah, I think like you actually need more forests because of the times people are going to interact with your elves and you need to cast these triple green spells. Cause a lot of the games I'd lose pr- prior with green would be with um, like having like forest forest, Nick those hands you keep with like an old growth troll. And I felt like I was just more likely to have more and more of those. Um, and really doing things like that trying out the different cards people have been trying um, coming to what you know made sense to me and uh, it really paid off so that was my always improvement moment this week
0: yeah I just really quickly because I think this is an opportunity to talk about this um, I, I, I'm kind of curious what your guys' opinions on a few cyborg cards are and Abe uh, since you are you know bat, we had we had a first and second finish on an RCQ two weeks ago and then a second place finish last week and then a first place finish this weekend On the cast. Uh, What is your opinion of a few flex slots? One, I want to know about Heart of Kirin. And its ability to play against Mono White as protection against um, Brave the Elements. uh, As well as being... You know, really make it easier to combo. And then two, like, what are your... What are your, like, five and four mana slots?
1: Yeah, so um, I had... The Silex instead of the Heart of Kieran. I think Heart of Kieran like, might... It might be getting better with the Redway Convoke deck that was kind of a really huge breakout this weekend. Um, I could see wanting to get it in some positions where you... Maybe Silex isn't effective if they're on, like, a really heavy Convoke and one-drop draw, based on my experience playing that matchup now. But um, that that's kind of where I'm at. And then, otherwise, we're playing a very, very stock sideboard with, you know... uh the boat, the chariot, etc. Um, nothing really fancy. Mighty weakstone. No, no that that is that is gone. I think that that one was like probably the the weakest once. Like, what? Once you had once now that you want to have Pelucano still in your deck, weak Weakstone was really cool as something you could board in. It was like an answer to Shouldered a sticky mana source, and also just like the draw two in those mid range matchups and good to storm into, but that's just become less of a thing where you really... I mean, I feel like I really want to just be as streamlined as possible and have as many of my, you know, fast, big creatures, because those are also just really good in the matchup where Might some extent was good.
0: Yeah. The the last card, and Mason, you're welcome to jump in at any time, too, is Wand. Uh, people have been saying that they're boarding out Wand, boarding into uh, boarding into that Heart of Kirin, to so the Heart of Kirin
1: plus the Silex.
2: Oh, that's really weird to me.
1: I think Wand has gotten a bit worse as like things like Thing in the Ice have become less uh important. Like there aren't as many creatures that um solely define the game, but I think that like in in, in variety of those. But I think that Children specifically is something where I don't wanna ever be in a spot where I'm cutting like my answer to one of the ways I, I feel like I lose games. But where, you did
0: that. You I just that. you already said that you did that by cutting my in right, I don't think I can cut both. and, oh, and I, no. I, in those
1: matches, in that match, I would board in the Mightstone Meekstone as an answer to have okay. because I had like, I had like two Lovestruck Beasts and like a Nickel Boss so or Nickel Boss so was uncastable. So, so that that's like kind of what led me there uh, in the past. But now I'm kind of just on the, you know, board in like, uh, what is it? I board in like my Darksteel Citadel and my Cityscape Leveler against... Red, black, and board out like two elves, so I can have my mana sources and have ways to answer a pit and needle. And, and I, I, I always want to make sure I have something that I can go wish for that just makes the game what I want it to be about. Because if you just have, in a lot of those matches where you want transmogrifying wand, they're not killing your your big thing. And so, but they're like flying over you. So you have an old growth troll, and you're like, all right, that's that's not that's a two for now. That's not as scary anymore. You just get so much time. It's it's really hard to, for me to want to cut that card.
2: Sure. Yeah,
1: I really like wand, and I, I will
2: say to the statement about like Carter Kieran as a thing to like block early and like good against uh monoway in some examples too. I think Haywire might does a lot of similar work. I know I played Carter Kieran, but I wouldn't have if I could have found Ratchet bomb, which I think was in my tweet. And maybe I didn't mention on the show, but I, I was a situation of like, ah, I have a lot of spirits players locally and it does everything we talked about. Plus be pretty good in that matchup. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll play the card. Why, why, uh, why play just...
0: Ratchet bomb over, uh, Silas? sorry. I
2: I, I meant this. I, I oh, call you meant this. Okay, that's, okay. That's, I was like that's me being a bad content creator. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> I, it's Ratchet Bomb that wins the game. Sometimes. Okay, I was like, like that seems yeah. way worse. Yeah,
0: fair enough. It's way better if you have Pithy Needle,
2: mm. uh, open deck
0: list. They oh. just might
2: need the a habit. Yeah.
0: No, yeah. Based on what about you would have been doing to be always improving? Uh, my always
2: improving moment this week uh, came from starting to listen to this podcast. Uh, oh no, it's called something mind i have forgotten the moment i'll have to look it up later uh <laughs> oh it's like the unheard mind i think uh and it's this podcast it's kind of like radio lab if you all ever listened to that in the past um but they had one recently on reducing friction and in incentives which was really interesting to hear and it was a moment of how do you provide good incentives to people to help them learn and improve and this is helpful for coaching where sometimes it's hard to give good incentives and to put build good habits into people. And there's a lot of really good lessons to be learned from that episode about incentives. So uh, a great example, and I'm sure I actually heard this on TikTok before, and maybe y'all have it. So I'll tell the story real quick. But in France at one point they had a rat problem. And so they decided to basically give 10 cents for every rat tail you in. Theory being to kill the rats. We all have problems. We pay you. You help solve the problem. What ended up happening is, is people would, you know, some people killed the rats and brought the tails in, but other people would let the rats stay around because rats can, like, you know, have kids, which grow more tails. Where they'd bring in rats and they go other places, and they'd have rat farms, and it ended up having ended up having a huge problem um, for France because now there's just more rats. So the incentives didn't line up with what they were trying to do, and how it's going to translate to coaching is still I haven't quite nailed that out perfectly, but getting to like hear and listen about that, and do some research was a really good improving moment, because it is sometimes hard to put people down the path there, even though they kind of know they want to, because building habits is really hard for people. So uh, my improving moment was basically, I had this problem in coaching, I went out and sought ways to help with it. And this is something that I think will help me with that. And it was really interesting too. just stuff like um, the big thing in there was like, they were talking about how, if you think about the fuel and friction for making people want to do something versus not do it, uh, removing the friction has way more benefit than adding more fuel of uh, the same amount so for example there was these sofa this sofa company had these sofas and they were like oh our sofas are really cool you could design it and we see people on the website we can kind of see the, the user data they're there they're buying it they're getting really close to buying it, but they don't go through it must be our sofas we must design something more blah blah and what they found doing some studies were is that the actual problem with a lot of users were is they would be like well i don't know how to get rid of my sofa that i have currently." So I just won't buy a new one. And so they just, because they still had a good sofa, they wouldn't, you know, buy the sofa. So instead they added a policy where when they dropped off your sofa, they would take your old sofa and buy it off you. And then they would sell it at like a consignment store for a small profit. So basically remove the hassle for you. And then boom, suddenly their sales went skyrocketing once they added the service. And so just things like that have been really interesting and I think will be helpful in coaching uh, once I figure out the exact way I want to implement
0: it. So... You just described being a product manager, and that was really funny mm-hmm. to me. Sure. <laughs> you just you just described problem discovery, solution validation, and that's great. Uh, you, we have some episodes on some of that stuff. Uh, Mason, I want I want to dive into what you just said really quick, because mm-hmm. I think that it does it doesn't just apply to coaching. I think that often mm-hmm. in magic, there are times where the incentives don't line up to the kind of results that you're looking for. And I, mm-hmm. I think a really good example of this that happens probably the most in Magic is like the PTQ grind, where mm-hmm. you end up seeing players that really incentivize to like maximize their PTQ results, but it doesn't maximize their efforts to be the best Magic players that they can be. And I, it, it was really interesting to hear you talk because I thought about the number of times I heard things that did not make me a better Magic player but made me a better PTQ player when we were all coming up. And I think that's really interesting.
2: Yeah. You know, I think it does all apply in different ways too, which is really cool. And I think that what you're saying is true. And there are like, sometimes the names don't line up and like also sometimes it can have like great tension or whatever, or it's like, I really don't want to play more Pioneer. But if I spend this two hours playing Modern in this league, am I like, you know giving up all this equity because I want to play the pro tour more than I don't want to play pioneer. Right. Uh, and I think those sort of things are going to come up and still sort of struggling with all that means, but you know, sometimes in life you can't just always be working and working towards something to take breaks. So,
0: uh, Abe, you were nodding your head as I was talking. I was curious if you had any thoughts on that before. I mean, yeah. I mean, I,
1: I, uh, you know, my college degrees in economics and like a lot of that is study of incentives. <laughs> and personally, it's something that like, uh, I took a lot of interest in when I was in college and studying a lot. Um, so yeah, I think that's just like a really good thing to think about, especially in terms of like, you know, how it applies to coaching and helping your clients, like understanding, you know, breaking down the structure of their own, uh, their own personal incentives and what it is they're, they're aligned towards. Right. Like that's something that comes up in coaching for me a lot is like, okay, well, what are your goals? And like, you know, what is it you're doing now? Right. If your goal, like much like what Spencer was saying, right. If your goal is to just improve at magic and be the best player you can be, but your incentive right now is and you like you know or you're responding to what you feel is the incentive of oh well, i just five of this league and that's what i want to be doing is five oing as many leagues as possible it's like well okay that's what the incentive structure of playing magic online tells you is the best thing to do you know that's your immediate feedback but is that actually the thing that's going to um you know get you close to your goal or are you incentivizing yourself to where you want to be and um really just understanding that and then finding ways to like i mean especially when you're doing it for yourself right? Like. There have been times where I've set myself like rewards, write My own incentive of incentives around the things that I'm doing for myself, either in magic or at work, right? To reward myself in the way that I feel like I should be rewarded to incentivize myself to do the things I know I need to do. Um, and I think that when it comes to coaching and working with people, like helping them be mindful of that and understanding where it does and doesn't line up and how you can use that to advise people on how to like, you know, um, reduce the friction or increase the uh, increase the fire towards the things that that really matter is going to be really important when you really find a way to put it into practice and it's going to be different every time, you know, it's, it's case to case. That's how incentives work. People are different, but really It's,
0: good a, it's a really good one. They I, I really appreciate you training that. I'll, I'll go next. Um, so I didn't know this was going to impact me and I, I put on a NFL Jersey today because it happened. But, um, for those sports ball lovers, um, Jim Brown, um, the GOAT of running backs in football died this week. Uh, And... uh, You know, I I personally didn't watch a ton of Jim Brown games because, you know, the Super Bowl era is a little bit more close to my heart, but I do know that his impact that he had on LeBron James um, as a Cleveland player and, like, LeBron James has had a big impact on me as I, like, think about improvement and study and things like that. And because of that, you know, I've watched Jim Brown and LeBron James conversations and things like that. And I I often think that when you see the passing of like somebody that was so much better at everyone else that did the thing that they did, it it is worth kind of taking a moment of reflection. And to put this in perspective, there are only two players in the history of the NFL, at the running back position, that averaged five yards a carry or more. And Jim Brown is one of them. And to put that in perspective, if you don't know football, you only need 10 yards to get a first down in football. So, like, giving the ball to Jim Brown, like, you get four, three, four downs to do it. You could just give him the ball every time and you would always score a touchdown. Like that was what his average said. Um, it's it's absolute insanity and his, his impact on the people around him and, like, the people that talk to him uh, is it, actually pretty, I, I would say, dynamic and uh, worth looking into. And one of the things that I think Magic players often have a problem with is, like, looking elsewhere for, uh, not motivation, but, like, understanding ways to improve at things. Understanding ways to be better. Um, Quentin Pierce was on this podcast. He was a huge fan of uh, uh, personal development books as he was trying to improve at magic while he was ghost on the show. Um, and I just think that, like, when you have a moment of somebody like Jim Brown that was that much better than than you know their colleagues, it, it is worth noting. Like, what were they doing? or were they thinking? You would think it would all be physical, but. Uh, a lot of what you hear from LeBron, uh, learning from him, is it It was a lot of mental preparation, which is something that Magic can take a lot from, where it is like, it is both envisioning what you're trying to accomplish, and then breaking down what that thing is, and then doing it. Um, You know, you you have, one of the things that Jim Brown was really good at was actually understanding from the pre-snap what the hole was going to look like for him to get his yards in, in football. And in Magic, that can happen a lot. Uh, Mason uh, was a huge fan of an episode that I think we've already done of like the things that you know before the match starts. Um, and Jim Brown was like, "This was his entire approach to playing running back in the NFL. Like, I I now know where to go because of how the the defensive lined up, and thus I will increase my average because of it." And I think that as you look at, you know, some of the great people that have done great things. You know, use that as an opportunity to say, well, how can I apply what they've done to Magic to be a better Magic player? So,
1: Yeah, I love that. I think there's a lot of inspiration you can draw from just a lot of places if you really look for it, and especially, um, you know, greatest of all time, uh, athletes are, are way up there. I know that there's, like, um podcast I listened to where they did an interview with Michael Phelps' swim coach, and they told a story about, like, him use the same kind of like vision practice without even being coached on it where he literally uh it was in the race where his goggles like broke dude that is can i pause it that is actually the craziest story i've ever heard in sports so do you know you know the rest of it where like that happens and then he still he still does it the answer was they were like how did you how did you deal with that happening and he was like well i got so bored doing all these laps (laughs) when I was practicing that I just started in my mind making up these things that might happen. Like I was like, Oh, I'm going to do it as if my goggles are like broken. And then I'm going to do it as if like, like, so he, he had already, by the time that happened, he was unfazed by it in the moment. Right? It's, so, it is
0: it is unequivocally the craziest sports story I've ever heard where this never actually happened to him, but he imagined it happening so that when it happened, he still won a gold medal in the butterfly because he had pretended his goggles had already broken.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he'd done that for like X amount of laps, and, and all the other disaster scenarios you could have ever thought about, because he had just done it that many times. And he practiced it to the point where he had to keep himself engaged in practicing doing it. But that kind of inspiration can come from you know anywhere. It can be books, and we talk about this a lot, right? It's lateral thinking, is you know looking to other places for inspiration, and uh, you know taking what you can learn from it. So I, I love that you were doing that this week, Spencer. Yeah,
0: and, and you know we have we have the uh, we have the goat of five color on this podcast, so it's easy to like you know represent the goats here. So. Man, I give him a shout-out. He doesn't even say anything. I said, no, nah, it's true. <laughs> you want to support this podcast directly? One of the easiest ways to do that uh, is to go to patreon.com. To become a patron of the show. Uh, this week we have three new patrons. We got Jesse, Jacob, and Bubbles. Thank you to each and every one of you. All of them are patrons of $5 or more. Uh, getting access to the Patreon only Discord. We had some confusion this week. And it was my fault. Because I did well with the Gruel deck at that RCQ. And said that part of my cyborg guide was in the Discord. And people went to the public Discord for the He's Game Media Discord. And I, I, I should have been more clear. But also... Uh, you know, I, we still post things in both Discords, but the, the Patreon-only Discord is for patrons of $5 or more. It's where a lot of the activity happens for those people. And we just want to give Jesse, Jacob, and Bubble shout-outs. Thank you for joining that Discord. Thank you for being a part of the community. And uh, we really appreciate your support. Speaking of the Patreon Discord, if you are in the Discord, I did post a discount to the Swag Store for Patreons only. Uh, one of the things that happened at the RC that Abe and I went to in San Diego is so people were like, we're gonna get you know CC swag. I was like, there's actually a swag store. You can also be a patron of twenty five dollars or more, and people are like, oh, I didn't know that. Like, and, you know, we were handing out wristbands. Uh, if you want to wrap the show, uh, there is a discount in the Discord uh, for anybody to use that uh, has access to that. And, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to support the show. Uh, most of our swag is not that profitable for us. So, like, we're basically giving it to you, like, at cost with this. But, you know, I, I think that, one, I I don't know. I love seeing people in CCMTG swag. I think we saw two or three people at the RC in shirts. Um, there are hoodies. There's tons of stuff that you can do to support the show. Um, and then if you're not a patron, just head on to the swag store anyway and uh, rub the show that way. That's a great way to support the show uh so let's go to the main topic we uh we had to like juggle the topic this week but i think we landed on one that i really like and that i think that a lot of us have like different perspectives on <laughs> uh because we're doing an archetype episode so we've done uh control we've done ramp we tried to do two episodes of mid-range, but both of them ended up being guest episodes. I didn't realize that until I went to plug our mid-range episode, Abe. Do you realize that both times we tried to do the mid-range archetype episode, it was Soul
1: and and uh, Misplaced Ginger? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's no one better to hear about mid-range from. And you can't... It's so broad. How are you really gonna... It was so mid-range, funny. Mid-range is... We're just gonna tap into that a few more times. Yeah, Don't worry. we'll we'll do a mid-range episode with just us. But it was so
0: funny because like we both times we were like, "Well, here's what I want to write down, but here's the thing I want to talk about. Let's just talk to this person." And you know, we could do that with decks, which is today's topic. But we're not gonna dive into the well again to get another guest. We're gonna talk about our thoughts on it, our perspective. And, Jason, uh, I, I kind of want to kick it to you to start off with. What If you were to define combo decks? like, what is Combo in Magic? Combo, at its base, is combining one or more cards together to
2: get a greater outcome than a card would singularly get, right? And so you're kind of working towards something. A lot of players think of it as things like uh, Pestermite plus Slender Twin. They have an infinite combo. But there's more to it than that. A combo is just when two or more cards work together to get a greater outcome.
1: Yeah, I would say also, if I can add on to that definition, Mason, and you can stop me if you disagree, but I think it's also important that, like, combo is doing that in a way that is in some way, you know, different than the way that, you know, most decks win games, right? It's not just trying to put some creatures in play and and interact with the opponent and, um and like attack them down or or anything like that it, it's trying to do something that goes around the conventional means of winning a game. would you agree that that's a that's a piece of it? Yeah, that's definitely a part of it.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I think so and I, I think that that will be well we'll get into kind of like synergy versus combo in a second And what was so funny as you two were talking and something that we didn't talk about in the pre-show I thought about like boggles it's like Boggles a combo deck or wow, I said that backwards is boggles a combo deck? Or is it a synergy deck? And like, I think we'll kind of cover that as, you know, kind of just like Ramp did this, where like Ramp had a lot of control elements to it. I think Combo will have a lot of synergy elements to it. And just like Aggro had a lot of tempo elements to it. You know, it's going to one of the cool things about Magic is how you can blur the lines between archetypes. Uh, and I, I think that this series has taught me a lot about that. Uh, let's talk about win conditions, though, because I, I do believe that at its core, this is actually what combo decks are about. Um, and as I was writing the show notes, I was trying to figure out, like, how do you show somebody what a combo deck is about? And it, it's really interesting because, like, a mid-range deck or an aggro deck, they their win condition is they're going to uh, put your life total to zero by attacking you and taking over the game. The control deck their win condition might be like bearing you under card advantage right and for a combo deck sometimes it's a little uh harder to define you know uh I, I think that a really good example of why this becomes harder is you look at decks like the current state of combo in modern and explorer like what's the what's the combo deck that comes to mind for you guys because for me it's actually creativity like that is the premier combo deck in both formats um and there is neither none of those are kind of that combo deck that, you know, none of that is that Splinter Twin esque two card combo, but they but the win condition is like, uh, you know, for the the modern deck it is bearing you under that card advantage where like you're not actually coming back from two archons coming into play like that you're that's actually not happening, um, you're not you're not beating this thirty damage coming at you, from Warm Plus. Xenagos, you're not beating, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, like, the Magus Opus combo. Like, they they are combo decks, but they're, they're combo decks that are around win conditions rather than around other stuff. And what's so funny is, like, when we were coming up, Abe, you know, the, like, the number one deck, probably when both of us started playing in Legacy for combo, was actually Blue Black uh, Reanimator. Not not the current reanimator deck. It was just straight up like brainstorm, like entomb reanimator, which is didn't I don't even think had Gristlebrand at that point. Like I think, no. like <laughs> I
1: remember Gen-Taxius being a big yeah.
0: Deal. Like Gintactus was a huge deal when it came out, and that 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 is like encapsulating kind of that. You're you're playing to your win condition. You're not playing to.
1: Ending the game this exact second. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know when you're defining combo and you're thinking about it in terms of like the the win conditions or the win states, it's really that at its core, the com- whatever you're doing with your combo deck is trying to generate a huge disproportionate resource advantage, right? Like if we're talking about, and that's across that's across the spectrum. Um, you know, that's from like the uh, the weakest to the strongest combo decks. It's either like you know, creativity, it comboing off and just putting an archon or two into play, like that is unfair. It is cheating a lot on mana. It is generating a very powerful resource advantage from very little. It's turning some fetch lands and a creativity or like you know some treasure to- in Pioneer like treasure tokens or goblins or your Muta vault or whatever into way more than you can deal with. Um, and that is comboing, uh, even if it doesn't necessarily like we're used to in a lot of cases, like Splinter Twin, where it's like okay. I have infinite creatures now. Like, that is that is a disproportionate resource advantage, right? Now I have infinite 2-1 flyers or 1-4, you know, creatures on the ground, and I'll just attack you with all of them for infinite damage. Like, that's a lot. Or you have infinite mana or infinite life, or you can, you know, make an infinite, infinite walking list. Like, infinite, very big amount of resources. But not every combo deck is like that, and I think it's important to just remember that the combo is really, and what makes it a combo deck, at least, I think, to me, definitionally, is that it's doing something for that. So when we talk about, you even just mentioned, like, Bogles as an answer uh, for exactly, Is that really combo? It's like, well, I think, I personally think so, because, you know, the Slippery Boggles and Glade Cover Scouts, they're making, you know, all these auras disproportionately powerful. You're going to spend all of your cards and all of your mana on uh, auras, which are typically pretty weak, but because they're on these hexproof creatures, now these hexproof creatures are difficult to answer, and killing the opponent, and... They're much stronger than anything your opponent could be doing to answer it. Um, so that's you comboing off the same way that infect turns, you know, a uh, giant growth into twice as big a giant growth, you know, having an infect creature. So, um, you know, when you think about it that way, that's kind of like the core and heart of combo um, to me. And so as we talk about, you know, the kind of the win states, and the win conditions, it really is. Are we is a deck generating so many more resources or doing so much more than the opponent at that stage where it goes off it it assembles its win state that um it's winning and and that's not always the case right sometimes you'll do the thing with your combo deck and and lose in some formats but it's important to recognize that that's at the core of combo uh Mason you kind of buttered your bread
0: uh, I don't know if a lot of people listening even know this at this point but like you buttered your bread with a combo deck to start. Your magic career, you both played Scapeshift and then Amulet Titan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have played a lot of combo. I mean, even a
2: a lot of the decks I end up playing have combos in them, right? Like Call of Five of the Purchur, playing Phoenix, uh played a lot of four color where you know terminal witness, counter spell, femrate was now we're
0: now we're getting into things that aren't combos.
2: (laughs) I mean I I don't know, I, I think Galvanic Iteration plus trespass is like the win condition that's a combo for phoenix i i mean that's like a debatable thing obviously you win in other ways but sure i win 99 percent of my games just like taking two turns in a row yeah and i spent the whole game sort of getting to that point so um you know and maybe that's boring lie a little bit but that's kind of how i see it in a lot of ways uh maybe that's just more useful for playing than it is for teaching uh but yeah i've played a lot of combo decks in my day i uh, played kci for a long bit i think one thing to remember when it comes to wind conditions and combo and sort of like this whole area is that things are going to move and change, but there are a lot of different, right? We, we talked a little bit about like A plus B combo with creativity, right? Uh, there's also sort of these like critical mass decks where yeah. uh, Lotus Field jumps to my mind when I think about combo in Pioneer, where it is very much in the vein of old school ritualing out uh, some big thing to take over the game. And this is just a, a very convoluted way to get there because that's what we mm-hmm. haven't Pioneer.
0: here. Should we should we go into this? I think we covered wing conditions pretty good, and I, I'll just kind of mention the things that we want to talk about. We want to talk about A plus B combos, infinite combos. I want to discuss demonstrating a loop because I think that that becomes really important. Things like Monocreen. I had a really interesting interaction where my opponent did not realize that I had infinite life, and I was like trying to tell them like, no, I like. Are, are you going to beat this symptom of Life? And he's like, well, show me. It's like, okay, I've demonstrated... Like, anyway, we're going to do it. Uh, we have Critical Mass stuff. This is, I think, historically, what a lot of people... If you play, like, a lot of Cube, or you play, like, a lot of... If you look at combo decks historically, it's so funny that so many people think of Splinterfin, because I actually think Critical Mass ends up being the majority of the combo decks that exist. Um, and then we have Synergy decks, which, you know... Uh, it was really funny, kind of in the the pre-show talking about things like birthing pod. Yes, that technically is a combo deck, uh, but that's a synergy. Like that is that is a mid-range synergy deck that happens to have combos in it. Or you think about like um, I think scape in a lot of ways, where it, like plays out as like a combo control deck is like a ramp synergy deck. So there's a lot of different things we can talk about here. But I'm to get A plus B co- combos because I think that's the thing that most of you are going to play against right now. Um, if you are playing in an RCQ, there are, there are a lot of different combos in Pioneer. But if you're thinking about like combo decks, um, there are specifically three A plus B combos in the exact same color combination. And it's really weird. So I want to talk about that really quick. So you have... Magus Opus combo with Gearhulk creativity. You've got creativity with Worm uh, Worm combo. Creativity without Worm combo. And then you also have Blue-Red Turns combo. Which is the Blue-Red control deck with Chandra plus Trespass. Uh, so it's actually four decks. I mean, the, the Worm combo and the non-Worm combo creativity deck are the same deck, but uh, that's a lot of A plus B in the same shell. Like, I can't think of another time in the time I played Magic where that's happened. I don't know if either of you have any examples of that.
1: I mean, there was a... I think it's just kind of a symptomatic fact that Pioneer right now, like... that, specifically, creativity of the card and that effect of, like, polymorphing is kind of the strongest thing... one of the strongest things you can I, be doing. I didn't
0: even include the, like, the... what's the four-mana one?
1: Transmogrify. Yeah,
0: the Transmogrify decks. I'm not even including in this.
1: Well, I think I think they're just, they're all doing the same thing, principally, right? It's it's an A plus B combo of you know I've got a creature and I've got the spell. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's going to get me a huge a huge advantage on my mana expenditure. Um, and really, I mean, for me, when I think about combos, it's like, uh, you know, A plus B is the it's the the lowest amount of cards you can involve in a combo, right? I'm going to need my my A card and my B card, and those things are going to do something really powerful. But uh, you know, when we talk about these other types of uh, of combos, I think it, you can also also think of it in terms of like how many cards is this going to take. So, like for me, like a critical mass combo is kind of on the right; it's on the far end of the spectrum from A plus B. It's like yeah, your scape shift plus your scape shift plus Valakut and whatever. Like that's actually like a nine card combo sometimes, or a seven card combo. You scape yeah. shift the lands in play. The, the lands in your deck you know maybe like a triad. Um, all the far, all the there. far
0: seeks that you've cast the cultivate whatever you've cast up to that point to get to that escape shift are all part of that combination of cards exactly where you need
1: the- to get all those lands in play and cast the escape shift so yes. that's a critical mass or like with burn or bogles or infect it's like you need the the damp like all you need all seven lightning bolts to deal more than 20 damage you need you know the creature plus the pump spells to deal 10 infect. So, so all those things are things where it takes more than just the two pieces, um, and kind of in the in the middle ground there lies a lot of the the strongest and most resilient decks. Like you were talking about birthing pod, it's like, yeah, the Melira Pod deck could go infinite with like three or four creatures and like in play if it had the right combination of them and gain infinite life or dealing for the damage, and it was really good at assembling that, but also it was just kind of independently good at generating a little bit of value here and there yeah. with all of its cards, because it was trying to assemble critical mass, but all those pieces were resilient. So I think it's just important to remember that um, it's kind of, it kind of is a spectrum within itself. When cool. You look at those
0: kind of, kind of going, let, let's go to the beginning of that spectrum, Mason. Like when you think about like an A plus B combo, is there something outside of pioneer that you go to? Cause like for me, I think about like Reanimator or Sneak and Show as that type of combo deck.
2: Yeah, I, I think Reanimate, uh, like you know, like maybe the modern L like persist for a lot of players. Um, but yeah, th- those kind of decks are ones that hop out to or jump out to me a lot. Um, kind of think about other A plus B combo because it's weird because in my head, A plus B and Infinite are very much combined normally. But I understand that's not the case for the show. Like I normally think of like Dalaran Guardian plus Saheli is A plus B, even though that is an infinite
1: combo. Well, uh, I, so I think wow. both. I, th- I think infinite well, is just yeah. like a. It's just a definer of what your win condition is, right? Like, yeah, this is more me detangling it out loud. So, with like that being said,
0: is there like a concrete difference, or does there need to be a concrete difference, Abe, in how you approach an A plus B deck and an infinite combo deck? Uh, when you look at how you're approaching playing combo.
1: No, I think that, you know, when it comes to how you play a combo deck, you know, A plus B is really just part of your... That, that's just the quantifier for your Wednesday, right? Talking about the amount of cards, right? Um, a perfect example, you know, we talk about synergy decks, um, something that Mason was talking about before the show that I really liked was talking about, like, Rakdos Sacrifice, Right those decks are often um, a lot of little A plus Bs together, especially with like, uh, you know, Cat Oven or, um, you know, Goose Trail of Crumbs, right? Those are things where you're doing small A plus B synergies, which are just two cards that net you... The things advantages. that you'll
0: tag Splinter Twin situation in on Twitter.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. got it. Got it. Um, and those A plus Bs, right, when it's the Sacrifice deck, it's like that is creating a little bit of value and the rest of the deck makes to the it snowballs that one piece of a value engine into like going off but it it's kind of what separates a synergy from a combo right is like is is me doing this game action or these set of game actions actually winning the game in my mind like that's that's what separates it versus um you know not and i think that it's all really contextual right like if you know that you're playing but knowing what kind of combo deck you're playing really informs the way that you should play it right knowing that you are a critical mass deck right knowing that you're burn means mm-hmm. that you can't afford to mulligan a ton of hands because at a certain point you need to cast a lot of these spells right you need to cast a bunch of lightning bolts because you're a critical massive burn spell yeah. deck or if you are an a plus b deck maybe you can just but right? if you're playing splinter twin and you're playing into tron back in the day, and you know they're not going to interact with you, and you just need to have a Deceiver Exarch and a Splinter Twin and kill them on turn four, and that's how you win, then maybe you should be mulliganing to, to doing that, right? It really... It kind of informs the way that... Uh, right, you can approach it, because you're going to need... You know how many resources you're going to need to win, because your win state is kind of defined by that. And I think that um, when it comes to combo... And then even looking at how many cards a win state like, needs to have, right? What makes Splinterfin so powerful was that those cards kind of were really low deck building costs. Or like look at Inverter recently from Pioneer. The cards to play the Inverter combo were really low deck building costs. You wanted to play Dig Through Time in your combo yeah. deck and in your fair deck and yeah. whatever. And jace was a good mid-range card um inverter itself was good enough for the format Thassa's oracle wasn't that embarrassing and then you got to play a bunch of interaction because you only need the two cards together to win
0: yeah we'll we'll actually get really far into that when we get into like pivoting and alt win cons because actually this is really important for like the best of the combo decks but you said something that led really good into our next point um about something about like the difference between some of these combo decks and like demonstrating a loop, like being able to say, hey, I've demonstrated this loop. I'm going to do this 30 times. Um And I'm going to tell a story about my first round with Monogreen ever in competitive play where I demonstrated a loop and my opponent could not understand what was happening. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get back to this Kiora at this Karn. I'm going to play Kiora and Karn. I'm going to get back this. I'm going to do it again. And I've demonstrated a loop. And he's like, okay, do it. It's like, no, you don't understand i i have infinite life okay do it no i i i've i've already done it like i i now can always cast this spell and these two spells forever okay okay how are you gonna deal me three trillion damage okay so is that you're just gaining three trillion life i was like no i can do other stuff are you not conceding like <laughs> i'm at three trillion now and it's it's I think it's a hard thing for a lot of players to both grasp and also know when they've done it, right? To be able to tell a player, I've demonstrated a loop. Do you understand the loop that's being had here? Is actually kind of a hard thing to do in paper. In in Magic Online, you just do it right. Like it's why loop decks are so underrepresented on Magic Online. Yeah, you can't shortcut it. Yeah, you can't shortcut it. So like. Uh, I'm telling this player I've gained three trillion life. In Magic Online, you know, I'm probably going to, what, like 86 before they concede? And even by the time I go to 86, I'm probably doing something else now. I'm like, all right, I've now untapped enough time to secure to kill you with something else. Uh, And and it's really hard. uh, It's actually, I think, Mason, you, I think you were my co-host when, or you know what, it might have been right before Michael joined... Wizards when we talked a lot about uh, KCI, where like demonstrating loops was really important during that part of modern.
2: Yeah, I think in general, my sort of advice people when you demonstrating a loop and your opponent maybe doesn't get it is I very slowly walk it through. And I, I typically tell my opponent, like especially if they're tapped out, I know like, for example, that doesn't have like a force negation type card from like that, I'd be like, all right, so this is a loop. Uh, let me show you how it works. And I'll be very precise. So you know, it would be an example with like mono green of like, all right, so I'm activating Nykthos, so I have 14 mana here, I'm going to cast this five mana card, play, you know, nine mana worth more stuff, and it's like, okay, so it's even, but this time, you know, I have this, whatever, right? And so now we're up one, and then it's like, okay, so I'm going to net one every time I do this, right? Uh, and that, like, lesson, like oh, okay, you have infinite mana, right? Because I'm going to say I do this one billion times. Uh, and so When you do that, it really allows players to sort of, I think, get it when you walk through it slowly. Sometimes players won't get it, uh, and that's frustrating. But for the most part, I think people are really good about that. And demonstrating a loop is just trying to have your opponent understand. Because I I honestly, like, especially the the more competitive your event is, the more likely they are to just know and they just concede right away. You know, at the Pro Tour, no one makes, you know, once you've demonstrated infinite or whatever, they just go like, yeah, show me the card. You show it to them. We move on, right? So long as it's in your sideboard. I'm okay with conceding to save everyone's time. We know what's going to happen. So uh, that, that a lot of it is just sort of walking people through it who don't get it and just you know, kind of being an ambassador to the game and you know, helping them understand.
0: I love that because, fun fact, in the game one that I won in that exact same tournament in the the qualifying round, uh, I showed them the loop and they were like, you have the loop? And I was like, yeah, here's here and here. And he's like, okay, I can see. And it, it's so funny that the dichotomy there But I think that the important thing is, like, you do need to be able to understand your own loops, especially when they're complicated in something like KCI. Or especially, I I actually think the monogreen loops can get really complicated. Like, the infinite pelucronose loop, for example, I think is extremely complicated. And I I personally, can you guys explain this to me? I can have infinite pelucronoses. Everybody's told me this. It's explained to me twice. You can just have infinite. infinite, Sorry, you get infinite tokens. Yeah, but
2: you, you never need to do that. Like, the only time you need to do that is if they somehow stop the other ways to win.
1: Yeah. but, okay, but you can get one flipped Pelucranos, and then you have the two other Pelucranoses, and they legend rule each other. Oh, you need all three
0: Pelucranoses for it to work?
1: No, you only need two. Oh, or you could or you could just Ratchet Bomb away the... Well, Why you do you also, the third one? Are F- they
0: both Hannah... the name so,
2: so, Hang on, no, no, no. Real quick. You have the Pelucranos on the backside. Yes, I play a new Pelucranos. I transform it once I once I generate. I have infinite life, infinite mana. Yes, right.
0: Yes, you already have infinite mana. I already understand that part. Yeah, yeah. Aim have infinite life because
2: transforming costs mana, which costs life. So we transform. Yes. yes. And then now I have two Pelucranos named World Eater or whatever. Yes. They have one legend rules. It sees itself die and so does the other one. So I get four tokens. Then I recast the Cauldron's backside to pick back oh, up. Oh, you get to poly- play it flipping. I see. Okay it's it's very a lot of these things are very easy if someone just takes the time to like slowly explain it to you that is not this how, how
0: they're also me at all for what it's worth when somebody explained to me the event tokens i was like this doesn't make yeah. any sense i mean you you could also have three peluconosis and then like have one in
2: play flip, and then yeah that's the normal size. all things. right but that that's like not
0: needed
1: yeah it's also I mean, like the like Third best infinite combo and you're like the third strongest thing you can do with infinite mana well, the, or thing is, and all the thing is Havoc is like and... a lot of
0: the combos for example in monogreen are actually not infinite loops like the untaps on uh silex that's not technically infinite you just need to be able, able to untap 33 times and show that you can do that like that's yeah, you can
1: you, can infinite you get infinite. yeah because, you can't because you, it only takes 11 untaps no, it takes eleven untaps. Damage. Oh, because each one gets a new untap. So it takes eleven damage to deal. Um... Or damage to deal ten damage, and it takes two ca- two casts of Pestilent Cauldron's backside Restorative Burst gets eight life. So you're netting three damage every every loop. Yeah, it's really easy. It is. I easy.
0: definitely explained this wrong to my opponent. I I literally made thirty three untaps to 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 do that. that. Works too. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean it, it works, does it, work, but want. like it I, it was yeah. unnecessary. <laughs>
2: I mean your opponent you should just your should just understood like hey I'm gonna have infinite activations, infinite Ds, I'm gonna silence you blah blah rebuy, blah 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 yeah, and you're gonna die. You know. Um but yeah, mono green has like three to four infinite combos, depending on your deck build, and they're all really easy to do uh once you know the start points, which is like very nice. But the hard part is most players don't know the start points. That's why I wrote an article about
0: it. Thumbs up. So fun fact about that. uh, We got, there were questions about where to start on monogreen. And uh, not only Mason, I'm going to throw your private Twitter under the bus that your private Twitter tweeted that you got stuff, but like my friends have been suggesting your article for baselines for everyone.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: I I just, I think you should be proud of that. Yeah. It's been
2: really great. I, I, uh, I ran into someone at a local RCQ. My ra- It was actually my round one opponent was playing Monogreen. And I'd uh, been reading my article, but didn't realize it was me until I played their friend in the next round who knew who I was from Twitter. And then told their friend, like, hey, that guy you played is the guy who read their article. And then we had a bunch of talks about Monogreen, and it was super nice to meet him. Just do Mono Monogreen
0: yeah. rocks. For what it's worth, uh, your article was why I was so pro to fairy at the RC. I was like, this is just easier. You should just do this. So.
1: It is definitely easier.
0: Dude,
2: is definitely as somebody easier who has now played
0: Teferi good. and not Teferi versions of Monogreen, I'm like, you know what? I just wish I had Teferi in my deck. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the uh, thing people don't
2: get about Teferi really quick. It's, it's just, all it does is make you combo sooner. Stuff
0: about Monogreen? That was last week's episode. No, I I, I do think that demonstrating a loop like Monogreen is the best way to explain this, but there are other decks that you have to do this with. Um, I want to talk about Critical Mass next. And uh, I, I, I would assume for all three of us, this is like how combo decks were presented to us because of Storm in Modern and Storm in Legacy and Storm, in Storm in pa- and Storm in Popper and Storm and everything. Uh, and then Burn and then uh, Boggles and like all of these critical mass decks, they, they are like kind of the most common version of combo. Abe, do you want to... Babe, are you a are you a storm guy? I actually don't know this about you.
1: Uh yeah, I've, I've been I've been a storm guy era or two. I, I, I have never I have never had a
0: critical mass combo deck era unless you consider scape shift or titan well, decks. That of course it, of course it counts. No, I don't. They're they're combo control decks. I just refuse to believe that they're critical mass decks. Go ahead though,
1: go off king. I mean, you know, I, I already kind of said this, but when it comes to critical mass decks, it really is just about you know, understanding and building up that mass of whatever it is you need, right? When it comes to, uh, you know, storm, it's usually, like, spell-based storm, it's going to be, okay, I'm going to need to have ways to draw a lot of cards so I can cast a lot of spells and get my storm count really high, be that mana sources. Or when it comes to, um, you know, something like burn, it's like I'm going to need to draw all of these damage spells and deal all this damage to my opponent, but that's my critical mass. And so I think that, Uh, In in both those cases, it's like the number one thing is that mulliganing um, and losing resources are like the kinds of exchanges when you're playing against combo or playing with combo that hurt the most when you're playing critical mass deck are the ones where you are like going down multiple resources because you do need every card to win, right? You need to have, there's no way you're winning without assembling that many, um, right? That many spells resolved. And so when that's the case uh, and it comes critical mass, you do just need to be cognizant of that compared to something like a two card A plus B combo where though getting those two things together is what matters more. And when it comes to the way that you might, um, you know, construct a deck looking at, um, you know, looking at legacy storm versus a deck like scapeshift, right? The reason scapeshift gets to be a combo control deck is because lands are something that are the common, uh, yeah. like denominator of what you need for your critical mass. Whereas, like so, so you can play more interactive spells because you're going to need yeah. lands either way and they work well together in that way but when it comes to like legacy storm you need a lot of rituals and you need ways to find the right mix of rituals and card draw and other spells to cast that are going to allow you to cast other spells that naturally leads to cantrips which will you know make your deck a lot more consistent um yeah. I, in addition so so that's uh, how i think it really impacts you know, the combo I, schema I,
0: there. I was mostly trolling for what it's worth. Like, the actual first Legacy deck I actually owned in paper was actually Oops All Spells. um, And that is the definition of a Critical Mass deck, uh, where the only way you win is through a Critical Mass. There's no... It actually has basically no... I think it actually has no bridge spells, where, like, decks like Storm could play Lightning Bolt. Decks like... Uh, you know, there there are different versions of Critical Max decks that you can still play bridge spells to get you to that bridge where, like, the first the first version of this deck, deck that I owned of this type of combo had none of that. Like, it was very much... And it was before the London Mulligan, for those who don't, don't know what Oops All Spells is, where you either had a Belcher version win or a mill your opponent to zero cards in deck version. But... It, it, I think that one of the things about critical mass decks is like it, it becomes about you think of blue red storm, you think of like, how am I getting to the turn where I can cast the spell that puts me over the edge? Whereas there are other versions, right? Where it is, how do I win on turn zero, which I think a lot of people attribute to these types of decks, which is not always true. I don't think you have to be a turn zero deck to be a critical mass deck. Like, uh, I think St- Storm is a good example of that not being true. But also, I, I think that, like, there are lots of decks where... I-, I think Rona combo, for example, is a critical mass deck in Pioneer right now that is very much not a turn zero deck. Or like, it's, a- it's like a turn five deck at best.
1: Yeah, you that's know, kind of like an A plus, B plus C. It's like a three-card combo, <laughs> right? <And laughs> Rona, a- either Rona, <laughs> and the Amber, and the where is the turn a turn two yeah
0: i mean it could be
1: yeah yeah there's always kind of like a trade-off and uh you know maybe mason you have like more to say on this but there's always a trade-off between like having that speed and uh and having like the ability to play things like bridge spells or like playing you know things like cantors for consistency or discard or counter magic for um for interaction and it's kind of like a balance that is dictated by the type of deck you are, right? When it comes to decks like, you know, Goblin Char Belcher or Oops All Spells and Legacy, those inherently, they're not gonna play lands because of the way their deck works. I guess until the the flip lands in, in Zenekar. even though they're playing a very limited count of I mean, lands. Bel- Bel- Belcher
0: is a real deck with a real following in Modern.
1: Yeah. Because of the the flip, the flip lands, before yes. that, it was yeah. like before the flip lands, you were just a deck with one land with a tiger. you just
0: worked. had a tiger.
1: <laughs> yeah it, it, it was how it worked i bought but a taiga now i own deck. a legacy deck right but without um with that comes that you have to have this big cost right lands are really good at generating mana multiple times and that's why they're so good you use them on every turn um and so you know there's kind of a trade-off there where when you build your deck without that Um, you know, you have to go all in on speed. And so you have to be a critical mass then of mana sources to cast your one thing. But I don't know, Mason, if you have, uh, if you have more thoughts on, on that. I, yeah,
2: I would say my thoughts sort of pivot into something else when it comes to like what we're going to talk about today, but I I would just say, and maybe it goes into this, I don't know, but I, I think typically the best combo decks are ones that have more going on than just the combo. Like, I think one of the things that the rona deck has an issue with is that it is a little too all in, despite being very clean. Like the deck has very little needed to actually combo when it comes to space in the deck. Uh, but it it unfortunately like doesn't have uh any like good backup plans. It can't like actually play the fair control game plan in the way that you know people thought, like, oh, you know, we're gonna have Fatal Pushes, Thought Seas, we flip our JVPs. Wow, you know, this is actually going to be able to play like an inverter type control game and this doesn't actually work that way and this is why the strongest combo decks often are combo control decks because they can control the game and then set up the combo we see this with splitter twin with combo cat with inverter they have you know exchange resources and then set up to the combo and we saw things like uh Sahili uh combo at the pro tour not do as well even though it was doing really well before because it was more all in it had less room to pivot. And I think that strong combo decks typically have some amount of pivot room. Uh it doesn't have to be the case with so decks like floodus field obviously they are all in on what they're doing. But I think the strongest decks and the strongest combo decks typically can play through some interaction in that sense or have some amount of redundancy.
0: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, what Mason said is 100%. I, I'd like to go into synergy decks really quick. And what Mason said is true, uh, Mason, you have a Patreon article about Parmesan, is that correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a Patreon article that is uh, about how I, I think working a combo or having some way to have a free win or some insurmountable part of your deck is a common trend in some of the strongest decks we're, we were seeing in Magic at the time. Yeah. And I think uh, earlier yeah. in the show, the Arclight Phoenix, the Galvanic iteration plus uh, Temporal Trespass is an example of this, of where you have a mini combo that really puts you over the top of your opponent. Uh, yeah. And I think that is sort of the idea of Parmesan, which is, is a joke of having you know just a little bit of cheese, right? Put a yeah. little bit of Parmesan on your spaghetti. So.
0: Well, no, I, I think that that's, that's totally fair. And I think Synergy Decks fit really well into this. We've already talked about Birthing Pod, which I would fit into this category. We haven't talked about things like Amulet Titan, which I think fit into this category, where they are They're technically combo decks, but like, that's that is not their primary game plan. Like, they are synergy decks that happen to win, like, happen to present an insurmountable advantage or an infinite combo as they play their game. Um, You know, Titan, for example. uh, For those who don't know, you're not familiar with modern yet. You've just gotten into Magic because you're a Pioneer player. uh, You can make as many Titans as you have in your deck like that that is a thing that can be your win condition you can also just kill your opponent you can also just deal them uh 18 plus damage on turn i think three right now you can turn two you can 18 on two yeah easily i mean it takes
2: pieces but it's not hard okay right, i believe yeah, that you see double amulet
0: yeah. oh sure 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 okay i wasn't thinking of that yeah. that that is that is i i probably have done that uh Mm-hmm. So, like the, the synergy decks, they, they, the one of the things that are really powerful, and the reason that I want Mason to mention Parmesan is because they, they do that thing that he mentioned about combo control that we mentioned earlier, where they have alternative game plans and normal game plans as they win the game. Uh, Birthing Pod was just like the best value engine mid range deck of the time. Amulet Titan, right now, Uh, it, you know, it can, it is a value engine ramp deck. Uh, there, there are lots of ways to be synergy decks that allow you to take over the game and then put yourself in a position to win where you don't have to be a combo control deck, which, you know, also gets that Parmesan effect. But I I think the next thing to talk about, because I I don't want to die too far into synergy decks, I think that it's more rare for a synergy deck to be that uh, not not one of the decks we've already outlined is bridge spells. We talked about this a lot on the ramp deck, Abe, where, uh, and I think I even mentioned at the time that, like, Volokut decks and decks like this kind of fit in this, like, combo control ramp stuff. But creativity decks at their heart actually do this. Like, this is actually what creativity decks are trying to do uh and it's really interesting how they kind of become the de facto thing instead of things like scape shift
1: yeah i mean I, I think that a big part of it right is that you know it goes back to what we're saying about a plus b versus kind of critical mass is that it costs you less cards in your deck to play an a plus b something like creativity does that and you have more room for spells that you know, give you time. Think about a combo control deck as really all bridge spells towards their end state of comboing as their kill condition. You just have more ways to interact because bridge spells are, you know, really, they're the spells that aren't doing the plan A of your game plan. They're there to support you, but they're not there to to get you there. So, like, you know, this could be It's usually whatever is interacting. In combo, that's going to be a lot more things like, uh, you know, discard spells. Like, one of the things that makes Grease Fang such a good deck in Pioneer is that it gets to play Thoughtseize. It gets to play, you know, a backup plan of having, you know, Chariots and Creatures and, you know, Sky Sovereign is just these good cards. Um, But it also has decent bridge spells in terms of, like, Thoughtseize. Witherbloom Command at times has been pretty good. Uh, Playing
0: playing a two-drop that literally discards a card from your own hand is like an
1: insane bridge spell where you get a block. With yeah. this two drop, but also get to do this thing. Yeah, and so I think it's just like when you think about your combo deck, or you think about combo decks in general, what's going to really dictate what kind of bridge spells they're playing? It's all it all comes back to the win states, right? I think that that's like the most important thing to think about in terms of of combo and bridge spells.
0: Mason, this is this is especially important for a deck that you played a lot. When you think about things like amulet, where understanding the Type of spells that Amulet gets to play that contribute to its combo while not being actually part of the combo are really important. Like, uh, the deck has recently got a Boreal Grazer, for example, where it gets to be a com not a combo piece but like a huge bridge spell, yeah. And and our Boreal Grazer can be a combo piece
2: too, as it, you know, often it is G to get another mana out of it, right? Like, if you have an amulet a double land and a grazer, you can pay G and then play a bounce land and be up a man and slip your land return. So, you know, I think it's the current of the perfect example of like it bridges early, buys you some little time, you know, get some lands out and then late game or when you have double amulets, you know, it's often asking, acting as a ritual of some sort. Um, So our border grazer, I think actually does a really good job of explaining that and looking for cards like that in your deck can often be a way to sort of get to what I talked about before, of having a deck that really functions, you know? If I can have, um, for example, like Tyvar in the Rona combo deck is a combo piece, but also just a way to like grind through decks that have a bunch of kill spells, right? So, having ways to... having cards that work that way are very helpful, I think.
0: Yeah, it, just kind of add on to what you said about Boreal Grazer, as Abe was talking, I was thinking about... I I was thinking about Fable of the Breaker. And its ability to be both a bridge spell and a combo piece, where like when you find cards like that, that that's 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 the secret sauce. Like that when when Mason says like oh combo control X are the best or like it's it's actually not combo control X they just happen to find these cards the most, but it's combo X that find these type of cards where they get to fill multiple roles uh, really easily. I have nothing else to say. Okay. Uh, let's go on to pivoting because I think that this is... Uh, one of the things that, that people asked us about, but there are a lot of things that we've already covered that I think cover this that I just want to highlight really quick. So I'll start with Fable of Mirror Breaker. Uh, there's a reason that a lot of the combo decks play Fable of Mirror Breaker today, and it's because it's a really good alternate Winkered condition. If you have two Fables... And mana, you win the game. It also draws you to your combo. It also bridges you to your combo. It's a huge reason as to why that happens. And anything that you can do to both bridge you while also winning the game is, like, a huge deal. And understanding how your deck pivots is also a huge deal. The the RCQ that I won with, um... With... With, um... Creativity, um... I, I got Necromentia. I didn't I didn't actually have uh, Archons in my deck. Uh, I I had to win through lightning bolts and and uh, and fables. And understanding like how your deck functions when you're disrupted is like really important. And having having the ability to do that is also important. The reason that some of the decks are so fast that they don't have those pivots is because they're so fast. But if you're not that fast, you need to be able to do that. Pivoting sort of, it, it's a good one, it ties into what we're talking
2: about there with like, bridge that and what I was speaking about, you know, with having alternate ways, having just things that you can do besides being a one note deck often helps you a lot. And, you know, you mentioned Fable the Mirror Breaker is the ultimate smoothing card that also is this alternate win condition uh, and go a really long way in doing all of that. And so that is really powerful. And it's probably see it be a multi-format all-star but you know all these decks if you have ways to pivot away so you're not you know you don't fold to just us do silence whatever right or rest in peace we see this with the grease fang deck where you know if you rest in peace it's like all right well i have creatures plus a secret yeah. like let's get on board let's let's game and I, I think that you'll notice that the strongest decks often are that way and decks that are all in really have to sort of build their deck to not holding to those things right when you look at Lowsfield sideboards the cards actually bring in are almost always to stop opposing ways to stop them yes right so it's like ways to stop a damping sphere ways to make it so you can target your lands and unsummon something right like void snare uh so these are all you know you have to supplement there somehow so being able to pivot in the main deck and really start at the beginning that way can really help go the distance and help uh, make your combo deck into sort of the best it can be and this is sort of like good things to look for like oh does this combo deck look real how well does it pivot? You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's so funny that you say that because I think back to like Splinter Twin era. Abe, have you ever put a Splinter Twin on a Snapcaster Mage? Once or twice, it happens. Yeah, and like that was a reasonable thing that you could do. You didn't want to do, but like it was a pivot plan between like, you know, it it was hard to beat, right? Like they were you were going to either prolong the game till you got a new Splinter Twin or you were just going to Lightning Bolt them out of the game?
1: Yeah, I mean, even just having Snapcaster Mage and Lightning Bolt was really, like, at the time, the premier pivot plan. At a certain point, if your opponent is just respecting the fact that you can combo them a lot and leaving up all their mana and not developing their game, and you're not having opportunities to use your Lightning Bolts, you would just start to deal them a lot of damage and flash in these Snapcaster Mages and get aggressive and either force them to tap out so that you can combo or, you know, ultimately push through... The damage and i think that really you know the combo decks that aren't you know extremely fast to the point where they're only played in four where or there's free uh they only exist in for where there's free interaction um you know you're going to get interacted with and having a plan b that is supported by the cards you're playing makes you a lot more resilient and a lot more powerful uh you know a deck in terms of you know how good you are in, in any given format so I think that uh I think that knowing how your deck pivots and knowing, you know, what all of your plans are and really what makes a good combo deck good is when all of its cards play together to more than just comboing, right? Like one of the I guess one of the like biggest strengths of of a lot of combo decks that turn out to be really dominant is that they're interacting with the board or playing to the board in a way that is meaningful. Right. So like KCI, it was a really good defensive measure to just be able to like blow up and engine explosives a lot. So you had a lot of engine explosives in your deck and it would keep you from dying or, um, you know, right. Bolt snap bolts out of, out of, um, out of twin. Those things just make your deck that much better in the games where they don't let you do, the thing your deck is built to do the most powerful thing in your deck so your second and third most powerful thing in your deck they matter just as much if not more than how good your first thing is
0: yeah i i think that you know if we looked at historically like the best decks in i think modern is like probably the best example people can look towards you know uh, it's not that hard to see like you know yeah, scapeshift decks, uh, Splinter Twin decks, all of these. I mean, I could go on. I, I won't I won't list every great combo deck, but like, it is clear to see they have other win conditions. Like Splinter Twin literally cut a color, for example, to be a ti- just tight Titan deck. Like it it was Rug Twin. Like Splinter Twin could have easily played Jace the Mind Sculptor into deci- Or sorry, not Splinter Twin. Uh, escape ships. could have easily played Jace the Mind Sculptor decided not to just be like, nah, we're just, we're just a prime evil Titan deck now. Like, let's go like, uh, you know, when, when Abe and I get to argue about like whether or not Titan decks are combo decks, that that's the case. That's the, the case study. Is that a combo deck or is that like a ramp deck or is that a control deck or is what it, what is it? And like, that's fun, but that only exists because of the pivoting plans the decks get to have
1: um yeah i mean I mean something that mason says a lot uh about hogak is that it got better when you know the altered dimensions got cut and that's a perfect example of this right like when your plans are more cohesive because even though you cut something that's more powerful you know your ability to pivot your ability to play a more fluid game just makes you stronger so it's definitely yeah. the case
0: but but I, I also think that hogak is a really good example of like a deck that had a lot of win conditions like, it, it could win the game through multiple, multiple routes. Uh, I want to talk about longevity really quick. Uh, this is one of the things that was mentioned in our Discord. Um, of, like, you know, you see decks that, like, have flashes in a pan. And you see decks that have longevity in a format. And, like, how do you know what your combo deck is? And i i don't have a strong opinion on this like uh i'll say this i i believe that if you are a combo control deck you probably have longevity if you are a critical mass deck there's probably a way to beat you because you don't you need a critical mass and people can disrupt you and i, I think that that is the difference between those two type of decks and i, I think it's actually a big deal I don't know if my coast screw with me, I'll start with Mason.
2: Yeah, I, I think the thing the first acknowledge when we talk about this is it is okay for a deck to be a time and a place deck and not a forever staple of the format. So I think a great example that right now is actually the red-white Convoke deck in Pioneer, where it is exploiting, and it's kind of a critical mass sort of combo deck, where it's exploiting, hey, there are not many good board uh, wipes being played right now that are low mana, I'm going to flood the board and sort of just push through a bunch of damage real quick and overpower you. That is what I'm looking and uh angling to do. That is a beatable thing, and it is okay to play a deck like that that's time in the place. Now, when it comes to buying a deck, you might want to, uh right, you have different incentives there. They don't line up as easily. Um, So then at this point, this question becomes like, oh, am I going to have fun with this deck for a long time? Uh, or is this deck going to be good for a long time? It really depends, like Spencer said there, where, how exploitable is the thing you're trying to do you know are you a graveyard deck well that might be a thing where players want to they can't beat you but you can maybe fight back a little bit right grease fang has been a deck in the pioneer format since since uh since the release of grease fang and it has always fought off graveyard hate to varying degrees and how much it wants to fight back so longevity in your deck uh and like how long this combat will stay around really depends on sort of the metagame and the cards that people have for it and how much they want to beat you right if people, for a long time, people were just okay losing the Lotus Field. They're like, that deck hasn't played very much. It has some bad matchups. I okay was just losing to it, and they didn't play Damping Spheres, and that's a decision that they made. So I, I really think it's an acceptance about decks having a time and a place and a real sort of internalizing that we should pick decks for the weekend and not some theoretical, like, oh, in the best case scenario, nine weeks from now, this deck will be bad, so I'm not going to play it. No, you're playing the tournament this weekend. Do what matters now. So, I know
1: yeah. how it feels. No, I mean, I, I think that I think that summed it up perfectly. I think you know, it's it's about what your deck is doing, how resilient it is. Right, the better your pivots, the longer standing your deck's going to be because it's better at dealing with interaction. And, uh, and uh, a plus, no notes. Uh, I have a plus only one note. You should buy
0: into blue red control in Pioneer, like. We got way too many decks that are good and we didn't even include phoenix in that if mason's including like trespass galvanic iteration that's another blue red deck like blue red in pioneer is that's longevity like you have a lot of options for your dual lands you have a lot of options for your pivot plans like um I, I want to wrap this up, but I want to ask like, uh, of our recent RCQ wins, I won with a combo control deck in creativity. Abe won with monogreen. Mason, your most recent is with monogreen. Uh, why why are we winning with combo esque de- decks? Like, what what is happening here? Why play combo?
1: I mean, I can go I can go first on this, but. The reason, if you're going to decide, like, you want to play a combo deck, it's because the conventional, fair game plan decks, you think are going, you're going to be able to exploit them with some aspect of your combo deck. Either you're going to go way under them and they're not going to have the right tools to interact with you, or you think you're going to just out-muscle them and get over the top of them, um, or, you know, you, you just think it is the strongest thing to do and that's what matters, and... You know that's the that's the beauty of combos that those are the most powerful things you can do in the game, right? It is it is a plus b infinite combos, or it is you know critical masses of things allowing you to generate infinite mana and, and do whatever, or just putting the biggest thing in play the fastest you can um, to to completely dwarf what your opponent's doing, right? All those things are unfair ways to play the game, and times where playing the game is unfair, um, and you're able to maneuver the games well and and play through the ways that people are trying to interact with you. You're gonna be rewarded because your deck is just gonna be more powerful than your opponents. And that's that's my perspective.
2: Yeah, I, I'm often playing combo decks. Or if I am playing combo deck, it's like what Abe just said, there. I think it is well positioned at the time. That's why I'm choosing to do it. I am, am not someone who thinks of themselves as like I am a combo player, or I am a mid-range player, or whatever. I am someone who is trying to succeed, and playing combo decks gives there are moments where when it's right, it is very good and you can get heavily rewarded and i think modern green his last couple weeks has been in that spot
0: yeah i'm I'm just gonna double that i don't know what these two said like you know mason and i had a, a a finish and a one round short finish the same weekend um with with lists that were three cards different like the thing is is like um There is usually an inherent weakness of combo decks. Historically, like when you think of a combo deck where like... Something like, for example, the current hot deck on Twitter... uh, The Convoke deck would just crush you. I, I don't think that that is the same problem that combo decks have today. Because people can construct their combo decks to have an A plus B combo or an infinite combo or demonstrate a loop where they can be favored against those type of aggressive starts. Like, uh, back, back when I started playing magic, like if somebody made three one ones off of one card and then made them two ones to attack, like you'd be dead. Like there's no coming back from that. That is actually just not the case in today's magic. There are lots of tools and things that you can do to avoid that. And the the mulligan rule is something we haven't talked about in this podcast, but I actually think that it really favors the the, the two types of decks. One synergy decks um and two combo decks. I I think the aggro decks also are a little bit are like the the next tier. Uh I would actually love to do like a Patreon only episode with you two on like who got the most from the London mulligan. But I would put styles of combo decks separately and and do that, because I, I actually think that they got a huge bump as somebody that's played a lot of creativity and a lot of ramp um, and a lot of Tron, even. Like, Tr- Tron Tron is number one, by the way. I, I don't even consider that a combo deck, but uh, it, it's really interesting. And I, I think that if you look at, like, why to play combo, you have the best mulligan rules that you've ever had. You have the most opportunity to play interaction that you've ever had. You have the cheapest interaction, the best interaction. Uh, there's there's a lot of reasons to do it. So, all right, we have answered all of the Patreons on the episode and their questions for combo specifically. We still get a Patreon question. If you're a patron of five dollars or more, you get access to the Discord where you can click the Google link and get a Patreon question yourself. Like logical insanity says. How many RCPs do you plan average in a given month? Any tips for those with a job and family uh, for the best of the less frequent attempts at winning and queuing? Uh, As somebody with no job, uh, I'll defer to you, Mason. I I just
2: win the first one I play most of the time. Uh, I don't know, like... uh... My, my actual answer, you know, is, like, I play the RCQs I want to play, right? And I would play as many as I needed to in order to qualify, right? I've been very lucky when it comes to the RCQ system. I have not had to play very many of them. Um, but when it comes to, like, tips, that, like, can, like doing well dim them and that sort of thing, uh, you should play the ones that you want to play and that aren't going to, like, Cause your life a bunch of disrupt, right? I think I things that happens for a lot of Magic players are there's stuff in their life that's term like causing turmoil or whatever, and they like play Magic worse than that because they have other things to worry about. If that's going on, it's fine to like skip RCQs or whatever. If there are more important things, if they're not though, you need to learn to push aside those feelings and stuff and deal with that stuff later. If it's smaller stuff, you know, like just little inconveniences, and focus on playing this one that you're going to go do because you're making a big commitment to it. So. You know, the question of how do you plan to give a given month? It's how many do I need to that while still working towards my goal? Um I don't know about y'all.
1: Yeah, Mason, I love that you said working towards your goal. Cause to me, this this is a question that like I think we've covered a lot of times in a lot of different episodes. I mean, down to like my I think my first episode on the show was was on uh on setting goals. And you know, I personally um, I'm in a spot where I'm working. Like, I have to work Saturdays a lot. Most RCQs are on Saturdays. Um, like, last month, last month I had to work. I've worked every other Saturday for the last six weeks. So, like, I've had only those weeks where I'm not working to be able to play RCQs. And on some of those, there just weren't me, right? So, I had to go and be really intentional with how I was planning, um, like, you know, the ones I was going to and making sure I came into them prepared, right? So, I think it's just about maximizing... Um, you know, the shots that you are able to take and being realistic with yourself and, um, you know, play as many as you are realistically able to magic is, uh, if you, right. If you're talking about it, you have your job and your family, that means you're putting them in the spot where they are more important to you than magic. And that's great. And you to be, you to allow that for yourself too, right? Be like, okay, these things are more important. They're not going to take priority. So I have these many shots. Let's make most of those. And uh, and you'll US that. That's something that comes up all the time with people i coaching, and it's you know it's just really regular. So,
0: yeah, this question is really hard for me. Uh, the first season of RCQs, I didn't know if I wanted to qualify. Um, ended up losing the finals of two. The second season, I won the first one, putting in a play. The third season, uh, which is Dallas. I didn't know if I wanted to qualify. um, But I still lost in the finals of three. Uh, And then this season, I know I don't want to qualify. And I've already lost in the finals of two. What does this mean for me for the total number? It means that um, my wife is letting me play weekends. uh, Where I can just get away from the kids and play magic the thing that i love to do and i think that what's important here is like it is up to you and your partner like one of the the important questions i think that you have here is like a job and a family uh there the the truth is is that magic takes a lot of time to be the best that you can be and since having kids I have never been as good at Magic as I was before I had kids. And I will will not pretend that that's not true. There are times where I played better than before I had kids, but I've never been as good at Magic. And I think pretending like... There's only one... Let, let me say it this way. There's only one player that has ever been considered one of the best Magic players in the world, having a ton of kids in like their early kid stages. And that's Mike Segrist. Like that's it. That's the that's the entire list, and it's the entire list because it's really hard. Um, and it, it requires a lot from your partner. And before you come to us with this question, you should ask your partner this question of like, how many RCUs can I play a, a month? Like, that's a question for you two, not a question for us as a podcast. I know that sounds like kind of BS. Like, no, I'm asking you what's reasonable, but like my wife would let me play a magic event whenever I wanted because that's the rules that we've established. But also, I know that she'd be unhappy if I played too many of them. And I'm not playing next weekend. There's an RCQ. I could play Monogreen. I think Monogreen would win. I'm I'm still not playing. Like, I'm, I'm going to go to my son's soccer game because, like, there's a level of... I don't even know the right word like I don't Mason Mason and Abe have both had girlfriends where like they get this but like when you have kids like there's there's a level that you you have a responsibility for that uh most magic players don't talk about and I I think that you have to consider that and if you don't it's wrong anyway you want to join the conversation, you want to tell me how wrong I am for going to my kid's soccer game, uh, you can join the Patreon Discord. You know? Tell me, Spencer, don't go to Maxwell's soccer game. He just lost last week 5-2. to two. He scored the only two goals. He's also scored two goals every single game. And they're 4-1. And, and the only game that they didn't win, he didn't score as many goals as the other team. Don't go. You can do that in the Patreon Discord. Just run the public Discord. Tell me the same thing. It's the He's Game Media Discord. What a weird flex from Maxwell, but go off. Dude, game. St- straight up. <laughs> do you want to know the craziest flex I have for my son? He scored 13 goals in a soccer game at the age of five. That's it. I'm not he joking. A true the score. The, the score was 13 to 0. Maxwell scored all of them.
1: I was about to say, you're, you're like my, my. What did we learn on the show this week? Was going to be that Maxwell is going to be on Blue Lock season <laughs> dude, two. Dude, yeah. if I was rich,
0: Maxwell would be out of public school and in a soccer only. Like, the kid is the only defender, the only goalie, the only scorer on his entire soccer team. We'll talk about it later. It's fine. Go ahead, Basin. I'm just laughing. It's just funny. It's It's, like, it's, son son is the team. (laughs) Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at CCMTG. You can check out the rest of the network. You've got drafting archetypes. We just posted a recent episode of mythic cast. We're in conversations to how continue that show as well as CCMTG like
1: sub comment and review. And people can find me at the mates. We're going to find you, Abe, me at twitter.com slash more nothings or you can email me at more nothings at gmail.com if you want to talk about coaching you and can mason. find me uh
2: at twitter.com mason e clark is the twitter handle you can find me each every week over at card kingdom this week i'm writing about the tier list for the pioneer metagame and going into the rc so if you're interested about that check that out find me at twitch.tv slash clark and feel free to reach out to me via twitter or my email which would be masoneclark@gmail.com, at gmail.com about coaching i have a couple spots right now so if you're interested in getting in i'd love to have a conversation and see if it works mason what did you learn on the show this week maxwell's a true egoist no He's the next no egoist. you
0: can't both do maxwell this is an improvement. no i
2: know i no, last week <laughs> i was gonna make the memes thing and then spence it, it went first so i, I can say this week. <laughs>
0: I'm a bigger Blue Lock fan. Than do you, okay, I'll just go for I'm. I'm just going to say the Maxwell thing so that we can end this. Uh, when Maxwell was four and he started soccer, I played soccer with him every day. And I forced him to learn goalie, defense, and offense. And his team has won, like, basically every game since. And it is, like, an inappropriate thing for, like, a father of a four-year-old to do. Uh, he hates losing, but like now, now he plays defense because nobody else on his team plays defense, and then they'll lose to this squad, and I'm like, Max, just go score. He's like, nobody's playing defense, Dad. What am I supposed to do? I'm like, just, it's fine. Nobody's playing defense anyway. <laughs> like, ugh. Go ahead, Abe.
1: Main character of Awashi. In you know what? Maxwell is going to be the main character. I'm giving character. him main go character vibes so school, bad. Boarding school. It's going to be anime worthy. I'm giving
0: him main character vibes so bad. It, I don't know what to do. Am I not supposed to teach him how to do all those things? Like, I'm a Listen,
1: man. We never get man. Tiger Woods. We never get Tiger Woods if his dad doesn't want him to be the best golfer alive. That's I, all I'm saying. I 13 goals. 13 goals as a 4-year-old.
0: To zero. If keeps to keeps it up at zero. He keeps it up at 10,
1: 13. If he, middle school, no, high school, is keeping it he's up. Scored, you
0: he scored. Oh, there's only one player that has scored a goal on his team this season, other than him. I don't know what Did to do. To Maxwell plays goalie once a quarter. Or one, yeah, one quarter. Like, what do they do when he's not scoring? Leave a comment. Let me know. Like, what if... I, I don't actually know what to do as a dad. Can we got some soccer dad tips? Spencer's having yeah, like, a crisis. straight up, I, like... He, and he gets so mad, too. He's like, none of them are going... Dad, you told me to do this. None of them are doing it. I'm like, what, do you want me to be their dads? Like, I don't know what to do. Uh, you know what? Dad yeah, teaches him to be a leader. That's the problem. Holy Brad, right that was rude. Uh, Ew. Ew. <laughs> um... Um... I'd want to fight you. Um, Wow. He's got to turn one into zero. (laughs) Zero into one. (laughs) (laughs) How is that not being elite? Anyway, uh, my learning is that Mason's rude. Um, Honestly, like, I I had not thought about the combos in the same way that we kind of talked about today. I I think that my biggest learning is... That the, you know, back in the day, com- the best combo decks were, like, Birthing Pod. Like, they were just, like, these synergy decks that comboed off. They don't allow you to do that anymore. That's not a thing you get to do. There's no, I, I mean, you see that, for example, with the banning of, like, Sihili, uh and Harding. You don't get to do that. You don't get to be a synergy combo deck and have an infinite combo. That's not allowed. We're not doing that anymore which kind of leads you to like combo control decks being the best thing and i've always loved those decks and i did not realize they might just be the best combo decks in the current competitive formats because of the fact that they get to play bird spells that other decks don't get to play they get to have their they get the most options for pivot plans they get the most options for other things um I don't know. It it was something that I was doing that I didn't know that I was learning. So I appreciate you, Mason, for kind of pointing that out. No problemo. No. Yeah, how many, Brad have, how, m- how many goals have
1: you scored in a soccer game? Get out of here. Let's go. I don't, I don't think I've scored thirteen in my entire dude. <laughs> you guys are so rude. <laughs> Why are we rude? I feel like you misunderstood what's
0: going on. No, you just told me I was a bad parent. No, I didn't. No. Oh, I misunderstood no one said that. I definitely misunderstood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're super reporters. We're
1: saying actually need to go out there and make team happen. You gotta learn the skills. Dude, his his coach
0: wants him to be do that. that to be fair. We're we keeping recording. His coach wants him to do that. He like encourages him. He's like, Hey, like, how did you do that? Like teach your teammates. And Maxo's like, Oh yeah, you just go towards the goal when you're in offense. You defend the goal when you're on defense. And you block the shots, when you're on goalie. And I'm like, that's what I taught you. I don't know what else to do. Touch player. Not a a theory
1: player. Not a theory player, Max.
0: I didn't play soccer. All right. Thank you, everybody. If you have better soccer goals for Soccer Parent, leave it in the comments on the YouTube channel. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We'll see you guys next time with another episode of CCMTG.